Welcome to episode 1,206 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast, a Fangraphs baseball podcast at that, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, I missed Thursday in baseball. What's happening? <laughs> yeah, you and I were just talking before we hit record about how quickly you can feel disconnected from baseball if you don't follow it for a day and it happens to be a day when there are a lot of games and things happen especially if your job is to write about those things, then it can very quickly feel like you are are out of touch. Well, some things happened yesterday. We're uh, about to talk to a Philadelphia Phillies employee and friend of ours, Corinne Landry, formerly of Fangraphs and many other sites. She now works for the Phillies front office, and we will ask her about that transition from writing to working for a team. The Phillies themselves are coming off a pretty good game. Jake Arrieta pitched seven shutout innings. The Phillies won 7 nothing. That's the latest in Phillies land. Otherwise, I think all the teams that were supposed to win won yesterday, which has been a rarity this season. I see that the Red Sox are 16-2 and two, while the Reds <laughs> are 3-15. and 15. So yes. I, there's this sense that it's not entirely true, but like we came into the season thinking, okay, we have these contenders, and then we have these teams who are not even thinking about winning. And it's like they've gone to the extremes. Like All of them have just kind of yeah. gone in one direction or the other, where it's been like almost immediately apparent who's supposed to be a contender and, and who's just like, we don't. We don't care about this season. So (laughs) I know that's not true. Like the Braves have hit and the Phillies are playing really well and the Tigers aren't as terrible as I expected them to be yet. But I mean, my God, the Reds have been miserable and the Red Sox, they can't lose. They're hitting the crap out of the ball. Yeah, well, about the Reds, (laughs) they had something happen yesterday that maybe you missed while you were climbing a mountain. They have a new manager. Did you you catch that? I I did catch a headline and I thought, (laughs) do I want to read this story? (laughs) I mean, I know it, I know it's, it matters, but like when you're a rebuilding team, they go through, they just recycle managers all the time. So I think you and I are probably on the same page that at least from our perspective, you can, you can change managers if you want, but it seems like it's a scapegoaty thing and the managers aren't responsible for why the teams are bad and etc but the teams in the reds position just they tend to shuffle through managers i had forgot that the astros went through like six managers in six years <laughs> when they were in a downstretch i only remember bo porter <laughs> from the down years i don't remember the other five but you know then you yeah. bring in a manager when the team is good and and right. that's that mm-hmm. so i was a little yeah. surprised that brian price lasted this long in the first place yeah right and pitching coach change too which <laughs> you would think that the reds would have many pitching coach changes given how their pitching has been the last few <laughs> years. So yeah, I mean, I I saw plenty of discussion about whether this is scapegoating or not. And it's not even really that interesting a, a discussion to me because this is just how baseball always has worked and probably always will work. If you are the manager of a lousy team, your job security just isn't going to be that great. There are probably ways in which Brian Price hurt himself. And certainly he has been criticized for the way he's worked with the media the way he has at times managed in games and much of the messaging from the Reds front office 
when they let him go was just kind of about the team's attitude or motivation or fundamentals. And those are things that I can't really assess with any great degree of accuracy. Certainly you could say, why fire him now? What has actually changed since last October? Yes, the Reds are off to a terrible start, but there was no reason to expect them to get off to a strong start. And so from that perspective, it doesn't speak well of the Reds management that they chose to make this move now. But if they felt that he wasn't instilling whatever attitude they want to be instilled, then I guess I get it. They're not going to be a whole lot better with interim manager Jim Riggleman. I mean, there there might be just some regression because they have been really, truly terrible. But let's, let's talk about office, that real quick. Yeah, well, I mean, the front office didn't do anything to make the team much better this offseason. So it's not as if there was any reason to expect the Reds to be good. Interim manager Jim Riggleman. Do you even need <laughs> to know the two proper nouns? Interim manager blank blank. It's always Jim Riggleman. This is the fourth yes. time in his career he's been an interim manager. It was the Padres in 1992, the Mariners in 2008, the Nationals in 2009, and now the Reds in 2018. <laughs> is Jim Jim Riggleman must clearly be the replacement level manager. That's it. He's yeah. like the 26th man on a roster. Yeah. If you are a manager, you do not really want Jim Riggleman to be your bench coach <laughs> or whatever because it's just inevitable that that he is going to take over for you at some point. And of course, he has been a manager, right? And uh, he had that infamous time when he just sort of walked off the job and there's the Deadspin video of him just kind of out partying or whatever that has been bandied about in the last day or so. But anyway, I guess the, the weird thing about the Reds is not that they are losing or that they are not pitching, but that they are also not hitting. And I think there was some expectation that at least the offense would be decent this year and that has not been the case. And even Joey Votto, the most dependable hitter in baseball, perhaps has been not his usual self this year. So I don't know what to make of that or of any of it, but obviously someone was going to be the fall guy. 18 games into the season, the Cincinnati Reds are one of two pitching staffs below replacement level. They're doing it again. (laughs) Only the Marlins are also down there. The Marlins are at negative 0.1 wins above replacement. The Reds are at negative 0.4. But yeah, I think it... Obviously, on the position player side, it hurts them that Eugenio Suarez is on the disabled list. That just sucks. Yeah. But also, yeah, the the Votto thing, he's had slow starts before. He seems like he maybe only has slow starts. But that one is as confusing and perplexing as anything that can happen in baseball. Because if anyone should be automatic, it is Joey Votto. So when something mm-hmm. is bringing even Joey Votto down, then yeah, maybe it is time to get rid of the manager. Yeah. So I wrote something for The Ringer that's up now. It was something that we briefly discussed on a podcast, I think, last week when you noticed that the zone rate at Fangraphs was way down, that there were many fewer pitches apparently being thrown in the strike zone. I looked into that. It turns out there was an issue with that stat that was making it look more extreme than it actually is. So the zone rate has not totally changed, but it is as part of a long-term trend declining year after year after year. And you've written about some of the reasons why that's the case individually Patrick Corbin or you know Masahiro Tanaka or the Yankees as a whole just going to this more breaking ball oriented style and breaking balls tend to be thrown outside of the strike zone more often than fastballs so obviously if you trade a bunch of fastballs for a bunch of breaking balls you're probably going to throw fewer pitches in the strike zone and between that and between maybe pitchers avoiding hitters hot zones and being scared of the high home run rates we've seen over the past few years 
there have been pretty significant declines in zone rate over the last decade or so. And the result of that, I think you could say that it's working out fairly well for pitchers for the most part so far this season, but it's had some sort of unintended side effects perhaps, and maybe in some ways that don't really benefit baseball fans or spectators. So the upshot of all of these pitches being thrown out of the strike zone, essentially pitchers are just kind of you know, getting hitters to chase. They're trying to get them to swing at pitches outside the strike zone. They're nibbling. They're throwing waste pitches. Doesn't even really matter anymore to starters necessarily because they're not going to get to face the third time through the order anyway. So they might as well just avoid contact if they can. And so the end result here is that there are more pitches being thrown per plate appearance. We're almost at four pitches per plate appearance. It's the highest on record by a lot. There's been a, a somewhat slow and steady increase in that over the years, but it's really spiked up over the last few years. We've got a another really big increase in strikeout rate. I know we've been talking about like 12 years in a row in increase in strikeout rate, but so far this season, it's up so much that it would be the most on record from one year to the next, except for 1945 to 1946, when everyone came back from military service. Walk rate is way up, which is something we were noticing in spring training, but that has held up in the season. And in fact, this would be, I think it's the second largest increase in walk rate year to year since 1910 and the largest since 1969 when it happened because the strike zone actually officially changed. So we're just seeing a lot less contact, a lot more waiting for decisive pitches. I'm not really one of the chicken little type baseball commentators who always thinks that the game is about to be destroyed by whatever the latest change is, but these are changes and they've been happening for a while now and they're getting more extreme and accelerating and I don't know whether they enhance the spectator experience in any way. And where the league, I notice, is also on pace for about 300 more hit batters than last season. That's another thing we both kind of identified happening in spring training, which I didn't think anything of. It's spring training. Maybe this is maybe that was normal for spring training. No, no, it's not hit by pitches way up. I don't know how much it means, but you know, lots of brawls, which means lots of suspensions, which maybe yep. a few concussions, broken fingers, hit by pitches, bad. Yeah, I don't know whether that's, uh, you know, I would guess that many of those are just sort of people getting hit in the foot or something as pitchers are throwing more and more breaking balls in the dirt. So it would be bad if there were more hit by pitches at a time when fastball velocity is increasing more and more. You could think that that would be something of an injury risk, and it's probably good that the C-flat style helmet has seemed to catch on this season. Uh, Everyone's wearing that, and maybe that has something to do with the fact that it can be more dangerous to be a batter in some ways these days. But yeah, add that to the list of non-contact events that are becoming increasingly common. Sort of non-contact. Well, yes, (laughs) in a way, contact with the bat. I guess the only... The only thing that gives me pause about, I, I always love, and I know you always, also always love extrapolating these early numbers and looking at mm-hmm. how things might be changing, but the only difficulty is that this year it, it feels like it's been so cold, just yep. al- almost everywhere, that, you know, it stands to reason that would have some effect on some players, which would then therefore have an effect on the league-wide numbers overall. So it's you can compare mm-hmm. to previous Aprils and Marches if you want to, but realistically, we'll let the weather warm up. We are powerless to stop the progression of baseball. It will get warmer. Games will continue to be played, which is good for us, and hopefully we won't take too many days off and and miss them. But I can tell you one thing that I did learn about Thursday. According to Matt Harvey, Matt Harvey is a starting pitcher. Matt Harvey (laughs) was defending himself. And Uh uh, 
I'll, there's just a paragraph here. Given Harvey's recent string of performances, 10 extra base hits in his last 16 innings. That seems bad. Among other indignities, it's <laughs> becoming increasingly difficult for the Mets to justify keeping him in his current role. All but acknowledging that much late Thursday, manager Mickey Calloway declined to commit to another start for Harvey. That did not sit well with the one-time ace who bristled at the notion that he could be headed to the bullpen or the minors. Mm-hmm. I am a starting pitcher, Harvey said. I've always been a starting pitcher. I think I showed that in the fifth, sixth inning. I can get people out. Matt Harvey's not very good anymore. No. <laughs> he is, for the moment, a starting pitcher. He's not wrong. And <laughs> the fact that he got to the fifth and sixth inning, he can get people out. Hitters, too, not just ordinary people. He could definitely get us out, but he can yes. occasionally get some hitters out. But there's a, there's a clip here. It's a, a picture of Matt Harvey. There's a video. Uh, the clip is titled Cabrera's Nice Sliding Stop. So that's a ball that was hit at least three feet away from his Drupal Cabrera. But anyway, you <laughs> see Matt Harvey looking toward the scoreboard, and it's like a screenshot. And uh, Harvey is getting out of the inning. It says, end of the fifth inning. Mets one, Braves six. <laughs> Not a very encouraging screenshot for, for Matt Harvey. But, you know, it's only been... So many years since Matt Harvey was like arguably the best pitcher. Now we know he wasn't Clayton Kershaw, but he was the second best maybe starting pitcher in baseball. Mm-hmm. And it, I guess, I know that a lot has happened. A lot of people will talk about his maturity, but mostly it, I'm going to guess it's been physical. But Matt Harvey spent very little time at the top, and I, I wonder how much of that was just health-related misfortune versus how much of that was, I don't know, maybe Harvey wasn't ready to be sustainable up there. But there are so many, like, I, I think about Felix Hernandez often, and I think about how at least his peak lasted several years, and now it's just kind of sad the way mm-hmm. that people talk about him. I see Mariners fans who just hate him now on Twitter. It's just like, understand, have some perspective here. But yeah. Matt Harvey, was unbel- was he a rookie or a sophomore? I don't remember exactly what it was, but he was... He would he would like one of those high fastball kind of pitchers. He's sort of predated the rise of high fastball success, and he just didn't last very long. And it's mm-hmm. incredible to me that now Matt Harvey has had more down years than than up years because he was sensational. And this was while I was writing about baseball for Fangraphs, so that's within the last half decade that he was unbelievable. And yeah. now he's now he's going to lose a rotation spot to Jason Vargas. <laughs> I know. I remember I was at Baseball Prospectus while the the Harvey sensation was happening, and I remember writing about it, and it was really extremely exciting, and he's just not that guy anymore. He's had injuries, and he's come out the other side seemingly with not the same stuff. That's something that we talked about on the Mets preview episode, and you know, in one way, I mean, things have worked out extremely well for the Mets. They've had zero starts from anyone other than their big five pitchers, which is exactly what you want and has a lot to do with why they've played well. But some of those guys are not those guys anymore, or at least Harvey isn't. Wheeler's looked pretty good. Matz has looked pretty good. But as we talked about on that preview, sometimes you go from being either injured or great to being healthy ostensibly, but just not that good anymore because you've lost something. And it seems like that's where Harvey is these days. Yeah, it's sad. You you think about how... Much work goes into developing a player, making sure everything is firing. And Harvey in 2012, 2013, even 2015 was just a very, very good pitcher. But he's lost three or four miles per hour off his best stuff. He still throws the same pitches. You know, he still looks like Matt Harvey in more ways than one, but it's just not there anymore. And you think how much work goes into building players and teams that just for whatever reason fall apart, for reasons that might not even be up to them. And it just has to be so frustrating that you can build something to be so good and you think, we did it. We made a guy into an ace for a year and then we have to find a new one. Thankfully, Noah Syndergaard came along. But then he got hurt. But anyway, 
This yes. Is, we, this isn't a Mets biography. Yeah. By the way, I just found the article I wrote at Baseball Prospectus about Matt Harvey at the end of his first calendar year. This was July 2013. I looked up the pitchers who had the highest wins above replacement over their first calendar years, and Harvey ranked 10th since 1950, which was as far back as Baseball Prospectus's war or warp went. So, you know, top of the list were guys like Herb Score, Dwight Gooden, Mark Pryor, Gary Nolan, Roy Oswalt, Hideo Nomo. Some stories there that had happy endings and some that did not. And so here was the last paragraph of that piece. I am now quoting myself, which is a pompous thing to do. We know Harvey has the repertoire to sustain his success, so the question is how long he'll hold on to his stuff. Advances in training techniques, nutrition, and medical care, plus a more enlightened attitude toward pitcher usage make it less likely that he'll suffer the same fate as some of the less fortunate fast starters, but it's far from certain that he has a long list of accolades ahead of him. We often point out that pitching prospects are unpredictable, but to a lesser degree, the same can be said of phenoms who've already experienced some serious big league success. Here's hoping that Harvey is one of the lucky ones. Right now, not really looking like he is. Two things I meant to mention. You mentioned the cold. It is, according to Rob Arthur, who did a little research for me and for my recent article, it is on average seven degrees colder so far this season at game time than it was last season. So that is somewhat significant. And also about managerial firings, there was an article at BP by Rob Maines on Thursday, and he was responding to something he had heard someone say on the radio about how the average tenure for managers has really come down. And that is the opposite of the case. First of all, I think Brian Price was the first in-season MLB managerial firing in two years, something like that. It's It's been a while. And Rob looked back. He didn't look at every year, but he kind of looked back by decade. So like 2008, 1998, 1988, et cetera, back to the 60s, I think. And He found that the average tenure of MLB managers in each of those years was shorter than today's, that if anything, it seems like the average tenure of managers has increased, has gotten longer. And you can sort of see why that would be the case. We're about to talk to Corinne about the relationship between the Phillies front office and Gabe Kapler. And, you know, there is a real relationship there and a mutual reliance there that you don't necessarily want to start from scratch with someone else because there's just a a whole lot of kind of history there that can be helpful. And so I think probably teams are maybe putting more care into hiring managers and managers are just being more tightly integrated into the framework of how baseball teams work. Now, on the one hand, you could say they're more disposable because they're not making as many decisions. They don't have as much authority, but they're also kind of, you know, cogs in this machine that if you remove them, you have to train a new cog, I guess. And so that can be kind of onerous. Uh, dehumanizing. You're all cogs. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, I had no yeah, idea. We all are. The, uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's important. Remind yourself. And also, Ben, remember, yes. are you working today? You're going to do some work after this? Uh, yeah, sort of. Yeah. Remember that one day you're going to die. <laughs> Thank you. I will be better at yeah. my work as a result. Last thing, you have a chat to get to, but there was a a very silly debate that went on in the baseball internet this week about Mookie Betts versus Mike Trout. I don't think that's a a debate anyone needs to have, but the Red Sox are doing fantastically well. Mookie Betts is doing fantastically well. Coming into this season, I would have had Mookie Betts on an extremely short list of the best players in baseball, but you wrote about Mookie. He's been amazing. He is even better now, potentially. 
Yeah, so Mookie Betts is the current league leader in WRC+. Pick a hitting statistic. He's at or near the top. Yeah. He's uh, now the... <laughs> The top five in WRC Plus are Reese Hoskins, Aaron Judge, Bryce Harper, Mookie Betts, and Didi Gregorius. Yes. So who really knows what we're doing here? Jed Lowry is number nine, but Mookie Betts has been amazing. He's sensational. He's always had really quick hands. That's what people have always said. Also, his neuroscouting is through the roof. <laughs> right. Unbelievable neuroscouting. But Mookie Betts, so far, for someone so talented, he's always been terrible going the other way, which mm. kind of has continued to catch me off guard. I always expect him to just be a good pure hitter to all fields, but he's awful to the opposite field, and he's amazing to the pull side. Since he came up, he's had the widest spread between pull side and opposite field success as a hitter. So what's happened this year is he is pulling everything, which it sounds like it's maybe too much, but he is it works out for him great. And he's pulling everything, and he's pulling everything in the air, which is exactly what Mookie Betts needs to do to be successful. I don't know. It's hard to tell if he's changed anything about his swing his approach but he's he's trying to he's swinging more aggressively early in counts and he's just looking for balls that he can pull and pull in the air and for whatever reason he's been able to do it so often that he's just clobbering the ball he's yeah. hit six home runs he's got eight doubles he homered again on thursday i'm giving understand he homered three times in that game against the angels which yep. shohei otani started and did not last very long in but as long as mookie betts is able to pull the ball with consistency and pull the ball in the air i i can't think of many reasons that you could get him out because he even though I know he's uh he's relatively little he's just he has this approach that it reminds me a lot of Jose Batista at his peak uh-huh. where he was just pulling everything in the air and there was one little area on the outside corner where maybe you could get him out but good luck yeah good luck pitching to that area all the time yeah well the Red Sox didn't hit for power last year and it was weird that they didn't but that was never going to be the case this year with bounce backs expected from Betts and Bogarts and G Martinez and as you've noted the lineup has also changed its approach and its philosophy and they're swinging and being much more aggressive at pitches in the strike zone early in the count, almost more so than any other team in baseball. So that has helped too. They've been pretty impressive. If they weren't the favorites at the beginning of the season, they certainly are now in the AL East. So you have a chat to get to. We will take a quick break. And you and I, in the past, but also the future, will talk to Corinne Landry, quantitative analyst for the Philadelphia Phillies. And the last thing I will point out in the middle of this transition is that in his most recent start, this is a few days ago, but Brian Mitchell went six innings, (laughs) walked three batters, but he struck out four, which was a greater number than his first three (laughs) starts combined. It lifts his season, walk, and strikeout numbers to 17 and seven. Brian Mitchell is on the up and up. Yeah, that is a positive strikeout to walk ratio in one day, (laughs) at least. All right, we'll be right back. So today we are excited to be joined by maybe a familiar name to many of you listeners, but Corinne Landry, a current quantitative analyst for the Philadelphia Phillies. So Corinne, hi, how are you? Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Great to be here. Very excited. And if you, when you talk to people who, you know, you're distant family members, friends, how do you explain the job that it is that you do? That's a really good question. And it's not always easy, (laughs) but basically what I do is I, look at underlying stats and data to help support the decision makers in the uh, baseball operations department. So that can be 
you know, the traditional ones that you think of, the general manager, or helping our coaches, player development staff, scouts, making the best decisions possible. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who, who isn't already familiar with you, could you offer some background? Because you uh, used to be a very frequent writer in the public baseball sphere. So in how many places did you write about the Phillies and baseball at large? Oh, geez. So my, the places I wrote the most were Crashburn Alley. That's where I started, a um, sabermetrically inclined Phillies blog. I also wrote for Hardball Times, Fan Graphs, Fan Rag, and MLB.com, and I'm sure some other places that I'm forgetting, but those were, those were the big ones. So I'm curious about how you feel about working for a team that you grew up following and rooting for, because I kind of did that too when I worked for the Yankees briefly. I grew up in New York. I was a Yankees fan. And I think a lot of people assume that that would be a perfect fit, that that makes all the sense in the world. Of course, you would want people who have some affection for that team, working for that team, but I think within baseball, there's often some suspicion about that or, or people kind of have their guard up because they think, oh, you, you just want to work for this team because you're a fan of the team and, you know, you're going to be just the, the super fan in the office, that sort of thing. So I was always sort of wary of not kind of, you know, showing my fandom in any way. And it kind of worked out because I just sort of lost it in the traditional sense anyway while I was working there and then while I was writing as well. Yeah, it's, um, I won't lie, there are moments when it's a little bit surreal. Mm-hmm. Probably, oddly enough, the most starstruck I've been, if that's the right word, was probably when I bumped into Chris Wheeler, <laughs> a longtime Phillies broadcaster. And for me, that's just, just kind of surreal because it's someone that you grew up listening to every single day. You know, he yeah. was a part of my daily life and this realization that he has no idea who I am. <laughs> and I spent how many hours essentially hanging out with him watching baseball. So there are moments like that. But I think when you walk through the door to the office, it's it's a different world. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're still a fan in a sense, which is something that I enjoy about working for the team as opposed to writing is, you know, I have a very vested rooting interest in the game and in our players doing well. Um, and so I really enjoy having that aspect uh, to to my baseball life again. but but yeah, you, you kind of naturally just uh, just adjust to your surroundings and um, you know, you want to step back and, and enjoy the cool moments when they pop up, but mostly it's just day to day, a new world that you're living in. Mm-hmm. A, uh, a question that I know Ben gets a lot, that I get a lot, that maybe you get quite a lot is uh, coming from baseball fans, usually younger, maybe college age baseball fans is, I want to work in baseball. How do you work in baseball? So if you could, could you speak to your experience of what was it like? Did did you reach out to the Phillies? Did the Phillies reach out to you? What was your experience of transitioning from the, the public sphere into the you know, the private teamwork? Yeah. So for me, the Phillies reached out to me with an opportunity to apply for an internship. And so I took that opportunity and, and obviously landed that internship gig, which was a full year, full-time internship, but it had an end date. So it was, you know, not, not the dream job offer, but it was the dream opportunity. And it was kind of my, I wouldn't expect an opportunity like that to come along again. So, so I took it and with the mindset to get as much out of that opportunity as I could, knowing that an end date was, was on the table. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for me, uh, I was in a position where the Phillies front office has been expanding. 
uh, in their hiring. So I was able to transition to a full-time role at the end of the season and started my full-time gig in October of last year. So the timing was right. I was fortunate. As far as advice for people, I think we went through the hiring process in our R&D group this past fall. And the thing that makes candidates stand out the most, in my opinion, is when they have examples of their work or examples of the type of work they want to do that they can point to. And it's easier to say than to do because you don't really know what's going on with the organization that you're applying to work for. But having having something that shows you ways in which you can contribute uh, really, really makes you stand out from a lot of very impressive resumes and very impressive people that apply for these jobs. Yeah. So to what extent has working for a front office been kind of a continuing education? Have you had to pick up a lot of new skills while you're there? Because thinking back to your work when you were writing publicly, I would have put you kind of in the the genre that, that Jeff and I are in, sort of, you know, writing with a, a statistical bent, but not necessarily in the, you know, Tom Tango class of doing a ton of coding and querying and inventing new stats and all of that. So have you sort of shifted more toward that side of things since you started working for the Phillies? Or have you been able to carve out a role just sort of with the skills that you already had? Yeah, I think in our department, we have a um, very strong mix of skills and abilities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, areas that aren't strengths for me, you know, my, my coworkers are able to kind of balance that out. But I think the biggest thing throughout my, my first year here was absolutely a baseball education in R&D and, you know, picking up coding skills. Um, for me, SQL and R some of our uh, analysts use Python, but for, for me, focusing on that, and it's something that it helps me do my job better, and, and I try to work on that, but also baseball in general. So as a general baseball ops intern last year, I was really fortunate to have the opportunities to to work with other areas of baseball operations and pick the brains of our scouts. I went to scout school. I followed your example, Ben, <laughs> and... Um, you know, had a, a wonderful education out there, talking with our player development guys, with our major league coaching staff. So just there's so many more sources of information here than there necessarily is, you know, writing in the public sphere. So learning wherever I can and really growing as a, um, you know, just a, a baseball person, I think is, is a real focus of mine. And since Gabe Kaplow came around, have you had a continuing education in avocados? <laughs> Uh, I, I try not to talk about food with a cap. <laughs> so what was, when uh, when you were nearing the end or approaching the end of your, your year-long internship contract, and then you were you're starting to have the conversation about going full-time and no longer being a, a contracted intern, how did that progress? How was that conversation? Yeah, so I started thinking about it. So I started in January and my end date was in December. And so in June, I started having conversations with my supervisor, just you know, what what does the process look like? How should I be looking to apply for gigs for next year and things like that? And um, was encouraged to kind of wait until the end of the season. And fortunately, at the very end of the season, my uh, our R&D director, you know, made me an offer and um, I was in no, <laughs> no position to <laughs> decline. I was thrilled to accept. It's a wonderful environment here. I feel incredibly fortunate. So it was a very easy decision for me, fortunately. So how have you weighed the opportunity to work for a team versus what you were doing and having a lot of success doing writing? Is that something that you miss? Because Jeff and I get that question a lot. Do you want to work for a team? Would you work for a team? No one is trying to get me to work for a team. People are trying to get 
Jeff occasionally to work for a team, but that hasn't happened. And I think we both enjoy a lot of things about this career and this lifestyle. And so I started out wanting to work for a team, ended up not wanting to work for a team, but I still see what the appeal of it is. So is there still a a pull for you in any other area or are you fully committed for the long haul? Yeah, so working for a team is not something that ever occurred to me. Uh I majored in music education. I taught high school band for three years after college, so uh, I can't overstate the degree to which working in baseball was not a focus of mine. But it was kind of, it's the the dream that you never really admit that you have. I didn't admit it to others because I I never really admitted it to myself. So uh, when the opportunity presented itself, and in the past year, it's been been fantastic, and I don't really have any regrets. (laughs) I don't... uh, don't really see myself transitioning back to, to writing or the public sphere, but that's not to say that there aren't things that I, I don't miss. Uh, I miss the the wealth of knowledge that's out there and the good writing and the um, just the connections you're able to make with people across yeah. the baseball writing thing. It's you know here I've got my colleagues and and we talk about what's going on in baseball and you know we still obviously have very strong opinions, but we kind of keep it in house and the ability to talk to whomever is out there is something that is just a wonderful aspect of the baseball community and it's definitely something that i I miss on a daily basis. I understand that given that you were recording this from the Phillies literal front office that maybe you can't maybe you might have a, a little biased uh, opinion on this one, but when you were going into working for a baseball team versus your actual experience, I know that one of the the greatest concerns I've always had about the potential of working for a team is is thinking about the you know the quality of life, the freedom that you get during the week, all the the standard concerns of being I don't know if it's overworked but just worked heavily and consistently to the extreme. So how has your experience on a day to day, week to week basis of of working for a baseball team in a pretty mid level important job compared to what you expected before you knew what it was going to be about? Interesting question. You know, I, I think that my expectations have been pretty well met. You know, I'm, I'm in a position where I'm not married, I don't have kids, and I'm very focused on my job right now. So with that said, I still feel like I have a solid work-life balance. And I think that it's something that, you know, we, we focus on as a front office. I think it's important to us to make sure that, you know, we're not burning out and, um, you know, that, that we have time to stay fresh and to to produce our best product which is only possible if we're um you know taking care of ourselves i I don't know if that's an answer at all i think that we work hard and especially now that season starts uh we just started a home stand and i'll be spending a lot of time at the ballpark the next week and a half but um but it's time at the ballpark (laughs) so it's uh it's great it's hard to complain about hanging around after work to watch a baseball game Yeah, that's something that I talk to a lot of people who are in fields where they do something that they really love doing. And so they put a lot of hours in and there is the potential for that to hurt them in some way. And so you want to be careful that, you know, the company or whatever is not demanding that they do that. But you just find whether I'm talking to people who work in baseball or people who even make video games and they have these periods of crunch where they're just working really long days and not getting days off and yet they're working on something they really love and they want the product, whatever that is, whether it's a video game or a 
a, a baseball team to be as good as it possibly can be. And so they end up kind of devoting their own energies to the thing, even if it's not really coming from above. So it's kind of a, a tough thing where you, you don't want anyone to be overworked, but people overwork themselves because it doesn't necessarily always feel like work if they're doing something that they love doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to ask about the evolution of the front office to the extent that you can talk about it, because you've been there now, I guess, for the majority of the current regime. And I'm sure that since you started, there have been many changes just in terms of the size of the department and the way it works and the infrastructure, and now certainly working with a new field staff and Gabe Kapler. So in whatever level of detail you can provide, how have things changed and improved since you started? Yeah, I think the the biggest change is just the um, the quantity of people. You know, we've made a lot of hirings, and for me, it's been the strength I see in that is something that we focus on is uh, getting positive streams of information. You know, you want to have the most complete information possible when you're making decisions, and I think that Matt Klintak has done a really wonderful job of um, you know building out our department in ways where we're generating the the best possible information for ultimately for him to make decisions so um, so yeah just growing out and identifying areas where we can get better information I think is has been a real focus and um, one that we've addressed well I know this is probably a, a hard question to try to come up with an answer to but with the uh... With your position, you you would be constantly offering research, new ideas, new suggestions. Uh, you're also one of several people who work in the front office, and not every decision is going to be maybe uh, agreed with, or maybe not every idea is going to be implemented or even executed properly. So given that you have a somewhat direct but still not playing surface kind of relationship to the product on the field, has there been for you some sort of like most personally fulfilling moment where you've seen maybe something, maybe a transaction or, or maybe something on the field where you think, yeah, if it weren't for me, maybe that wouldn't have happened. I think one of the, the key moments in, in our department last year was um, we did some work just looking at a relief pitcher, Adam Morgan. And, um, you know, I don't know that the recommendations really had anything to do with with his turnaround. I think he generated that through his own hard work and through our pitching coaches. But, you know, ha- having some role in in the process in helping him, you know, figure out h- how to take the next step um, and then seeing the, the production that he's had on the field has been rewarding. Uh, according to Baseball Reference, Adam Morgan's nickname is Amo. Does anybody call him Amo? <laughs> Not that I've ever heard. <laughs> so how has having... Gabe Kepler around changed the way the front office works or interacts with the field staff, with the people in the dugout. I don't know what that relationship was like before, but obviously you have someone who is hungry for every bit of information and avocados and <laughs> is also just willing to try things that are non-traditional. So how has that changed your workflow or, or the workflow of the front office as a whole? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that... Um that our department is more involved on a daily level with what's going on with the major league coaching staff than 
than we were um, when Pete was here. You know, the, the thing that's great about Kapler is exactly what you said. He, he wants information and he will ask questions or be willing to listen to any different ideas. And so it, it's a, a positive environment, I think, and an exciting environment to generate products that is, you know, impacting the decision making for him on, on a daily basis. So I don't know how much reading about baseball you do in your present job. Maybe it's a lot more than ever. Maybe it's a lot less than ever. You have plenty of work to do on your own. But, you know, you you might read the the sites where you used to write. But how often do you find now that you are from a position of more understanding, more knowledge of what's actually happening, how often do you find yourself reading something and wishing that you could just reach out and say, no, no, this is this is not true or, or not correct? Do you feel like... <laughs> The Phillies, do you feel like the Phillies or at least the things that you know about are, are covered for the most part properly or, or do you just find yourself stewing from time to time? I think it's more rare than you would think. You know, there's a lot of brilliant writers out there. Maybe part of that is just the self-selection in what I'm reading. You know, I I'm, I'm tend to read smart people. You know, I do read the sites that I, that I wrote for. I read Fangraphs and Crash Burn Alley. And um, I think that, you know, their approach is one that I understand. And there are some information gaps. But, you know, I, I don't think it's as extreme as you might expect. I think for the most part, the work that's being done in the public sphere is really on point. And, um, you know, there's a ton of information that is driving public baseball research. And it's a valuable part of our daily life, frankly. It's a valuable part of our process um, as baseball people. Was there kind of a um, an eye-opening moment or orientation when you started working for the Phillies? And this was, I guess, about a year or so after Matt Kledtick was hired, maybe a little more, and you were just an intern at that point, so maybe you weren't privy to everything. But was there sort of a, a point where you came in and you just learned a lot of things all at once that you hadn't known or maybe hadn't believed or hadn't you know thought existed? Or has it just been kind of a, a gradual revelation of insights? I would say it's definitely been more, more of the latter, uh-huh. um, just kind of gradually uh, building information and, and learning what's available. You know, we do have some, some really wonderful resources in-house that I definitely wish I had when I was writing. Mm-hmm. You know, some things are a little bit more streamlined than the, uh, the uh, kind of piecemeal way you, you put things together yes. as a writer. But, um, but you know, it, it's been pretty gradual. One of the things that I've I've come to understand from people I know who go to work in baseball is that their their relationships with other people change. You know, the instant that you start to work for a team, then either you you have a more a lighter baseball conversation with people who aren't in the game, or maybe you cut off communication entirely with people who work for other teams. So you you wrote about baseball in several places. You'd formed some number of closer or more acquaintance relationships with other writers, and some of those people work for teams now so do you how often do you find yourself in communication or maybe even thinking of like some sort of rivalry between your team and like a team that a friend of yours happens to work for somewhere else (laughs) i mean it'd be great to to beat dave cameron's padres (laughs) (laughs) but um no i I think it's you know your, your personal relationships the ones that matter extend beyond your baseball connection and you know, I, I've tried to remain connected to people I've, I've met through baseball, but absolutely the, the nature of our conversations is different than it used to be. And I miss it to a certain extent. There are definitely people that I miss talking baseball with, but still try to keep in my life. How does a front office know 
if it's a good front office? This is, I mean, it's kind of a complicated question, but I would think that many front offices think that they are above average front offices. And of course, they can't all be. But you can't really get that great an insight into what other teams are doing, except I suppose if someone who used to work there maybe moves to your team and is able to share some information in some way that is not privileged. So it's it's tough because you can't really talk to people who work for other front offices and everyone's secretive and you're all kind of doing things in your own silos and you know probably some similar things but also different things and I guess you can't worry too much about what other teams are doing you just have to focus on what you're doing but I mean is there discussion is there a sense of you know here's where we are in terms of our headcount or our our infrastructure, our technology, our database, whatever it is. I mean, I, I would say that it's it's fair to say that we, we keep track of, you know, what's publicly available information about what other teams are doing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not something that we really talk about beyond just we want to be good. And so, you know, what are the best practices for us as an organization? And so you know, what makes a good front office is a fantastic question. And I don't think that there's an answer. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I think can give you some insight is you think about a good front office and, and how they have so many different types of baseball people from the R&D department to, you know, the the lifers and scouting to, you know, your coaching staff. And with so many baseball minds coming from different perspectives, if there's an ability to to work together and to be on the same page, people are generally positive about the direction that you're heading. I think that gives you some insight that you're on the right track. So from from the outside, and you, I'm sure, remember this pretty well, but there's a strong element of what seems to be randomness or just noise in the baseball results. And of course, it's the results that people care about far, far more than anything else. You talk about, you know, variation from base runs record Pythagorean or this team is overperforming or these projections aren't right or, or whatever you want to say. But now that you have moved to the other side, do you have a different perspective on sort of the the relationship between things happening by design and and things happening by randomness because I know I've talked to some baseball people like even this year where they've talked about this whole really detailed plan they've maybe had for a pitcher and they were excited going into the spring and then all of a sudden that pitcher gets hurt and misses the season and that just seems like it's got to be really frustrating but do you do you find that there is more signal in the baseball results than maybe you thought before or is there just an unmistakable strong element of randomness that you can't do anything about. I mean, I think that we're all very much aware that randomness plays a part. And I think for me, the the biggest difference now is an awareness that randomness not only plays a part in our results, but can have direct impacts on people's employment. And so being sensitive to that and understanding that that results matter and have a direct impact on, on your organization, I think, um, just kind of heightens the awareness and the search for ways to overcome that randomness. Is there a different mood in the office at all these days now that the Phillies are playing well, are expected to play well? Many people were picking them as a surprise team or a team that was really on the rise this spring. As opposed to the last couple of years when you've worked there and you could kind of see it coming together and there was a long-term plan perhaps, but in the short term, the team wasn't really contending. I mean, could you notice, is there anything perceptible 
in the office in the mood of people or how you're following the team that is different now that the team has started to transition into this period where hopefully the the things that you've all been doing for the past few years have kind of come to fruition sure uh so i i missed the kind of i guess the darkest days you can say um for me starting january 2017 through last year i think to now there's definitely a, a sense of positivity that's been consistent but you know, I think it's it's fair to say that there's more excitement when the team is doing well, and you know, it was a very exciting off season for us. And I think spring training had a very different feel this year than it did a year ago. And uh, you know, so far it's been been fun to see the results. Do you think God could throw a pitch that Reese Hoskins couldn't hit or take for a ball? Not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask about the, you alluded to this being an exciting offseason, and I guess for the first time in your tenure, the, the Phillies were really big players for prominent free agents, and so when the office was kind of mobilizing to provide information or input about Carl Santana or Jake Arrieta, I mean, I'm sure that you were one of many people offering input and doing work related to those moves. But from your perspective, how did, I guess, the the team effort play a part in those signings as opposed to maybe some of the more minor transactions that had happened previously? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a very diligent approach to those kinds of signings. And, you know, everyone is well aware of the the money invested in these deals. And fortunately, we have a, an ownership that is very supportive of uh, investing money when appropriate. So, you know, I think that the decision makers take that responsibility very seriously. And so gathering information from from all possible sources, including our efforts in the R&D department, was part of the process in in those uh, major signings. This is going to be a softball question. I know it's a softball question, but when I've talked to Phillies people before under the the sort of newer regime, one of the things that's come up time and time and time again is just how much of like a a family feel the front office feels like as a whole that the the organization is just warm and accommodating and I don't know loving even just like across the board supportive and you think of how you might picture like a an analytical first front office for some other baseball organization you think you know unfeeling robots like you do but the Phillies seem to have built just this network of, of really strong relationships so the softball question builds on that but essentially has has this been your experience when you were coming in, did you expect to receive the sort of support and familial feel that it sounds like you and pretty much everyone else has received? Yeah. um, So, you know, growing up a Phillies fan, you kind of, there's this sense that there's a, like a a family feel to the Phillies organization and, you know, joining the the front office, I kind of figured I'd find out the real story. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but it's true. It's a fantastic group of people, you know, beyond just baseball operations, but throughout the front office. And it's something that is really important to the organization to maintain. And people think about it, keep it in mind during hiring processes to make sure that this is someone that fits culturally and will, um, you know, be another positive source of energy in the front office. You know, I'll say that my my very first day, my boss, Scott Friedman, took me around the baseball operations department and introduced me to everybody. And so we kind of walked around here and then all the way down the hall is where Andy McPhail, the president is, and we got down to his office and he was on the phone. So I didn't meet him then and uh, came back to my workspace. And about an hour later, Andy stuck his head in and said, 
hey, Corinne, I just wanted to meet you. And it's like, you know, Andy McPhail taking five minutes out of his day to introduce himself to a, an intern on, on her first day is um, just a, a wonderful thing. And, and it's something that um, organizations should be doing, I, I suppose, but you don't expect them to be doing it. And, um, and that's, that's the kind of the, the personal touch that you find in the Phillies organization. So maybe one more, you kind of touched on this when you were giving us the Adam Morgan example, but it does seem that more and more in recent years, front office focus has shifted or at least shifted to encompass player development as much as player evaluation or player procurement, that there is this sense that a lot of players have maybe latent talent that hasn't been fully unlocked yet and that you can unlock that with the right change to a swing or a pitch design or throwing a certain pitch more often, that sort of thing. So has there been a lot of focus on that player development aspect and in trying to get more out of the players that you currently have in maybe a more analytical way than would have been typical in the past? Yeah, I think that we are absolutely focusing on all the different ways in which we can dispense the information that the R&D department is turning out into all facets of baseball operations. So it's it's an exciting time, and especially with the department growing right now, it, it's something that I think that we're probably still feeling out. But any way in which our information can help help our players, whether it's you know helping identify players uh, for the amateur draft or helping our uh, minor leaguers make those adjustments and unlock that that untapped potential or helping uh, Kapler and the major league staff. I think, you know, we're investigating it all and learning and improving as we go. And also, Jeff and I spend a lot of time talking about player evaluation, about projections, maybe about prospect evaluations, that sort of thing. There's probably an area in which each team knows more about its own players than anyone else does, and each team, of course, has its own projection system or some form of projection system. Do you think that those are meaningfully better than what Jeff and I are forced to use? Is there a way to tell? Is there testing that's conducted to say, yes, this is X much better than Pakoda or whatever projection system you want to name? Or is it just kind of about every team doing its own thing in the way that it thinks best and hopefully adding some information? But in the end, they can't all be better than, than the public systems. I'm just curious about what the difference is or how much effort goes into assessing what the difference is. Yeah, I, I don't think there's huge gains to be made um, over what's publicly available. You know, obviously we have easier access to information mm-hmm. than what the public systems are relying on. But yeah, I mean, it's hard, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> projecting baseball players is not easy. And, you know, so many weird things happen in baseball that it, it's a part of the puzzle, but um, will never be complete picture. Well, normally we would wrap up by telling you where you can read Corinne and where you can follow her and find her. And the answer is nowhere because everything she does is property of the Philadelphia Phillies and too bad for all of us. But thank you for coming on and sharing what you could. Well, you can come out to a game at a Citizens Bank Park. Yes, you can do that. We'll we'll hopefully warm up soon. (laughs) Thanks so much. One of of my uh, regrets in my writing career was not getting a chance to go on Effectively Wild. So I appreciate Appreciate you, you helping me uh, finally get there. You did go on the Ringer MLB show once briefly. I, I, I did. Think. Yeah. So you, all right. So now you've crossed off both Ben Lindbergh podcasts. All right. <laughs> well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. 
All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. That will do it for today and also for this week. You can support this podcast. Make sure that we have many more weeks by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support on Patreon include Ariel Levenbuch, Harold Walker, Duncan Lejtenyi, Joseph Blumenthal, and Will Hickman. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, active even on weekends. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system. My inbox is pinging all day with messages from you, and it's nice to see that the audience is so engaged in that way. We try to answer as often as possible, whether via email or on the show. So we hope that you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back, of course, early next week. Sometimes it snows in April Sometimes I feel so bad, so bad. Sometimes I wish that life was never ending. But all good things they say never last.